again, and welcome to the Hilco Global Smarter Perspective podcast series. I'm your host, Steve Katz. Today, we're speaking with John Fenn, Senior Managing Director of Hilco Enterprise Valuation Services, about the importance of a continued commitment to determining impairments despite the rebound in both equity and debt markets, as well as recommended best practices in both enterprise valuation and portfolio review during the ongoing pandemic. John's enterprise valuation team is part of Hilco Valuation Services and is a global leader in providing reliable opinions for financial institutions, investment firms, on the realizable value of going concerns in tangible assets, illiquid investments, and other specialized business assets. With that said, welcome to the podcast, John. Hey, Steve. Thanks for having me uh, on today. Yeah, absolutely. We're glad you could join us today. So, John, I know there's widespread relief that debt and equity markets have largely recovered on both price and spread, uh, and that current valuations are also significantly elevated as compared with what we saw, say, at the end of Q1 and, and start of Q2. So given this, why, in your opinion, is it still so important for businesses to remain diligent in determining impairments right now? Well, Steve, I think there are a lot of reasons for the increased diligence. I think one is is a requirement by the SEC that if there is an impairment out there, you need to declare it as quickly as possible. But I think more importantly, as we think about what happened at the end of the first quarter, the market sold off significantly. There was a absolute rush to get impairments assessed. And there were certainly significant impairments that were identified at the time. Spreads were wider, risk was off. The Fed came in with significant liquidity and obviously saved the day. We got both a cannon shot from the side as well as the, the monetary side. But if you really think about the valuations that are in the marketplace today, particularly on the equity side, there is a case of the haves and the have not. The stay-at-home stocks, the technology-based stocks have significantly rallied. While a lot of the old school industrial names and industries have not performed nearly as well, those aren't necessarily impaired, but it's not necessarily universal that all ships have risen with this massive amount of liquidity that ultimately came into the marketplace. I think it's pretty well noted that the S&P 500 is being carried by five names or so, which make up more than 20% of the overall valuation. So if you look at certain industries, retail, airlines, leisure, hospitality, the hotels and gaming names, those are still significantly impacted. It's not really clear as to when many of those industries will recover. And the fact of the matter is, if you did a first quarter impairment and you identified an impairment, the lack of improvement in some of these industries, in fact, some perhaps even continued deterioration in some of these industries, you're going to see that there may be a need to reassess and take that impairment down or take the asset value down another notch or two. It's just not safe to assume that given the rally in the equity markets, given the tightening of of the credit markets, that impairments are not necessarily an issue anymore. I think as a requirement for financial reporting, investors, companies need to continue to to stay on top of, of these things. Makes sense. So given those points about the lack of improvement and reporting requirements, can you then lay out for us how your team goes about accurately distinguishing between a temporary shock to a company's cash flow and true impairment? And then also why it's so critical for a company to leverage the right expertise to undertake and document the assumptions that are made as part of that process. Sure. This is 
really the crux of how impairments are being assessed in the marketplace today by companies as well as investment management firms and and those who have financial reporting requirements. To some extent, company management is a big part of, of this assessment impairment, whether or not they think that this is something that just creates a a, a temporary blip or whether or not it's something that is ultimately long-term. And I think you you ultimately have to focus on a number of these types of situations. Take automotive suppliers, for example. Manufacturing was shut down. New vehicle manufacturing in this country will go from 17 million in 2019 to about 13.5 million in 2020. That impacts every supplier through the supply chain. Does that mean that those suppliers are impaired? Not necessarily. It could be that if they drop off of certain platforms, they may be impacted longer term. But the idea that they just don't have as much work in 2020 doesn't necessarily mean it's an impact. So whether management thinks that they can come out of this in 2021 at a same run rate they would be at in 19, or it takes till 2022, those will be embedded in the projections. The real question is, how long does it take to get back to prior run rates? How much are are the finances ultimately impacted by that? Retail, another perfectly good example of, of this thing. There are great stories in the retail space. The big box guys are, are all performing very well. Those who had adapted to e-commerce as opposed to just a bricks and mortar strategy have not necessarily suffered at all. And yet we have a very, very high level of retail bankruptcies. Those who were already on a path to careen into a problematic place in the retail space really probably just saw that problem exacerbated and accelerated by the pandemic. No customers walking in not really a well-developed e-commerce platform, and therefore you have a formula for a significant runoff in your cash flows and, and the like. We've seen a, a spike in, in bankruptcy in the fitness center space. Now, does that mean people are no longer interested in fitness? Of course not. Peloton is, is performing well. The stay-at-home stocks and, and stay-at-home pieces of that industry are performing well. Yet, we've seen all of these major fitness centers, center bankruptcies, and frankly, if you ran into a liquidity crunch and you have become to, to needing to file, you saw your valuation collapse significantly. Whereas if you were able to survive and you had a business model that wasn't necessarily contingent upon members paying their dues and you, you were on, on more of a franchise model, you, you perform quite well. So in, a name like Planet Fitness is actually still thriving with a very solid stock valuation. Whereas those who have gone through the bankruptcy process now wind up trading for ultimately pennies on the dollar. Yeah, it's amazing how some businesses within the same category manage to escape just based on the model, right? So in light of the lingering impacts of COVID and factors, including those run rate considerations, you could probably guess that my next question is about step-ups in the value of assets on the books. Specifically, How do you go about assessing whether a business is still worth the stepped-up amount that's reflected in goodwill, and how frequently should an assessment like that be done in this type of an environment? Well, the frequency of it is at least once a year, if not more, depending on on how much fluctuation you're ultimately going to see in in market value. But I think the assessment and what you're getting at is really the crux of the, the whole impairment assessment game. There are two factors ultimately that drive whether or not stepped up asset values are are actually worth it. The market is going to tell you what 
a, an investor is willing to pay for a unit of earnings to the extent that an industry has gone from, excuse me, 10 times earnings to six times earnings, well, you're getting a very solid signal that the market no longer values the earnings of, of a given industry as strongly as it had previously. And you try to do this on an apples to apples basis to make sure that you're not getting caught up in the noise of lower earnings, which have a an ability to ultimately increase your multiples. The second factor that you would obviously look at is just what the projections are with respect to earnings. If management's view is that we're not going to be as profitable in, in the future, and that lack of profitability in future years draws on for multiple years, well, I think it's fair to say that there needs to be some type of an assessment of whether or not those stepped up the basket and the goodwill is quite appropriate any, anymore. Now, one of the things that one might say to, to me is, well, aren't they one in, one in the same thing? And, and they actually are. It really comes down to what the strength of a signal is. To the investor, the retail investor sitting at home, who's not necessarily involved in private equity or private companies that need to go through these types of things, they're going to see what the multiples are. They're not necessarily going to get a clear view on what management's assessment are of, of a unit of earnings. But so the factors are, are still there. And I still think that as management teams think about whether or not to take impairments or to ultimately write down asset values, they have to really assess their own internal models from a standpoint of thinking, are these assets going to prove out to be worth what we ultimately paid for them in, in prior years. And that's really the, the, the thought process behind having, having companies true up the book to, to reflect you know, market reality and, and why impairment assessments are part of the, the financial discipline that's, that's imposed on you by, uh, by the commission. Yeah, it makes sense. I like that strength of a signal thought too. I, I never really thought about it that way. So that's, uh, that was very interesting. And I'm curious, and I'm sure our listeners are as well, about how your team at Hilco is looking at factors such as discounted cash flows and terminal value in the work that you're performing on behalf of clients during the pandemic. Is that somehow different now than it was pre-COVID? And if so, how? Well, I think there are a couple of things that, that ultimately you know, we think about as we look at projections. I think one, you take projections with a lot more of a grain of salt these days, given the amount of uncertainty that exists in the marketplace. I don't necessarily know anybody can say with a tremendous amount of certainty that 21 is a recovery year. As we think about the possibility of vaccines and the like, 21 becomes a, a lot more optimistic and robust. And certainly, I think that's reflected in the, in the marketplace. I think as you, as you look at things like bank stocks and the like, potential for release of reserves, uh, lack of credit losses, et cetera, there's a lot of optimism that's embedded in, in the marketplace. That being said, for private companies, if you hand me a, a set of projections, that don't necessarily reflect a an impact of 20 or an immediate rec recovery into 21, despite the fact that you're in an industry that has shown little ability to drive pricing or, or thing, things of that nature, we're going to probably take a lot more of a skeptical look at, at your numbers. We have to think about working capital. We have to think about CapEx. Is CapEx even necessary right now? Do companies stop going into growth mode? 
where working capital might have been a source of cash in 20 because you weren't doing as many sales? What's the impact for 21, 22 as your sales ultimately start to rebound? With respect to terminal values, I think that the one the one important thing to think about is if you had a set of projections at the end of 19 and your terminal year in 24 showed an EBITDA number that was in line with with how your business was operating, the quicker you can get back to that point where that 24 EBITDA kind of remains in line with expectations as to where you were pre-COVID, I think one is pretty clear signal that you're one, not impaired, and two, that your your valuation is going to hold up that much better because their thought process is your short-term blip is ultimately driving a an ability for management to have confidence that the profitability is ultimately there. We spent a lot of time looking at terminal values because we think the terminal values are going to be a, a pretty, particularly from management projections, is going to be a pretty clear impact as to whether or not there ultimately is an, an impairment. I think with respect to the DCF, one of the things that, that we have obviously done is put a additional premiums into the weighted average cost of capital, the, you know, the, the discount rate that we're, we're ultimately using, simply because of, of the uncertainty embedded in the, in the projections. And I think this is you know, something that any good valuation specialist is going to wind up doing. Just the fact is uncertainty should be addressed through the discounting mechanism and what investors are going to do. If I expect a 20% return on my money, and I feel like there's uncertainty as to whether or not that 20% is good. I might seek 22 or 25 in the future, knowing that I may only get the 20 anyway. Yep. Good points. Well, John, I'm thinking, and I can't believe it was, you know we're at the end of the podcast already, but I'm thinking it would make sense to wrap it up today with your overall viewpoint on the state of private asset values as they stand today versus where they were pre-pandemic. And then if you have any final thoughts or watch outs that you think would be worth sharing as we head into the new year, it would be great if you could top line those for our listeners as well. Sure. I mean, I, I think in terms of private asset values, they're probably more fair today than they, than they were pre-COVID because I think with pre-COVID numbers that they were probably a embedded sense of optimism that there was growth and those valuations were probably predicated on a, a robust underlying equity market that would have been supportive. We've had an accommodative Fed for quite some time. So certainly in the debt markets, the, the cost of debt has been cheap. You know, credit spreads have been tight. So those types of assets, particularly middle market debt assets, probably traded at a at a premium to what might have been argued as consistent with their underlying fundamentals. Mm-hmm. Uh, COVID took some of that out. I think given the fact that there is uncertainty surrounding private assets, how quick are the, are the recoveries? Thinking about the fact that most of the private assets that we deal with, and I think most of the private assets that exist, regardless of whether we deal with them, are going to not necessarily be price leaders. They're going to be down down the food chain, down the supply chain. They're going to be price takers as opposed to price leaders. The fact is discount rates ought to be lower. One of the issues that we do have with, with some of these valuations and some of the uncertainty surrounding them is do we assess you on 2020 earnings? Do we assess you on a last 12-month EBITDA number? 
We're not going to do that because there's too much noise in the numbers. We're trying to benchmark you to 19. We're going to see how you shape up ultimately relative to your, your 2021 forecasts. Management teams are not necessarily making those forecasts, certainly not making them public. But what are the analysts ultimately say, saying about these things? I think these are all kind of factors that have driven the underlying valuation in the private markets to a, a little bit more of a, I won't say realistic, because fair value is fair value, and you were supposed to be reporting fair value previously. But the fact is, if there's a little bit less optimism that's embedded in the marketplace itself, probably takes the values to a place where is it's more in line with with underlying fundamentals and not necessarily driven by growth rates that may or may not be achievable. Okay. Well, as you pointed out, this process is definitely a complex undertaking and perhaps more important than ever in a market like the one that we're experiencing currently, where there certainly could be a tendency, I would say, to look at the recovery and assume that these types of assessments may not really be needed or that a detailed level of documentation isn't really all that critical. Clearly, though, as you've explained, those types of assumptions would be ill-advised. So for those of you listening today, whether you manage the financial reporting function within a business or you manage a portfolio of businesses, we encourage you to reach out to John and his team at Hillco Enterprise Valuation Services for any needed guidance or perspective regarding impairment testing, quarterly portfolio review, or other related matters. John's email is jfenn at hillcoglobal.com. That's J-F like Frank, E-N-N at hillcoglobal.com. John, thanks again so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Steve. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. And listeners, as always, we hope that today's Hillco Global Smarter Perspective podcast provided you with at least one key takeaway that you can put to good use in your business or share with a colleague or client to help make them that much more successful moving forward. Until next time, for Hilco Global, I'm Steve Katz. Thank you.